Hey, welcome to this episode of Hollywood Breaks. It's good to be with you. Today we interview Kevin Getz, the author of Audienceology and the creator of Screen Engine. We heard Kevin's stories of what it means to be an additional stakeholder in the filmmaking process as a person who interviews the audience and gives feedback to filmmakers. Absolutely fascinating. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as Kevin shares many great insights and really encourage us as future filmmakers and creators to embrace the process and embrace your audience. So enjoy the show. It's fun to read your book because there, what you did when you're in your book is just start telling your story. The people that you know, uh, even in the, it might've been early on in the intro or something like that. You even talked about, you know, the neighborhood you grew up in New York is just down the street from Eddie Murphy, um, where Eddie Murphy grew up. And I think that when we're in Hollywood, we all, we all want to tell the story that same way. So as I was reading your book, I thought, that's, that's how I tell my story. Well, you know, what I do for a living starts with kind of like who I am and why I got into it. Isn't it kind of like part of our life journey? If you're in Hollywood, is, you, is your life connection to film and the people that you love or the neighborhood you grow up in? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I tried to write in a very colloquial style and uh, to make it sound like my voice. The best compliment I get from people are who know me um, are comments like, you know, I heard you speaking to me. I like, I knew that, you know, and the, and the other great compliment I get are for people who don't know me who say, ah, I, I get that. When you talk about finding your and, you know, your A-N-D, finding your and, uh, that's my story, you know, uh, because many of us set out to do something uh, often completely uh, in a different area and end up uh, in our business and not necessarily in the place in our business that we thought we would be. I thought I was going to be, you know, a movie actor uh, and uh, pro- first probably a Broadway actor and, and singer and dancer and then a movie actor and maybe producing. But that was, you know, not the ultimate place I ended up. I did do that for a really strong and long period of time. But so I think that it's really interesting to uh, to know that we all come from a place, as you said, that um, had one intention, but often morphed into something else. And those of us who are lucky enough to stay within the category um, can really can really recognize that. You know, why did you all did you always want to be both Tim and Keith? Did you guys want to be in the uh, in the film business? What else do you know about the film business growing up besides there are actors and yeah. then there's a person called a director, which you don't even know what that is and a word producer, but that I, you know, I don't have a context for anything else besides actor and director. So when yeah. you show up in Hollywood, you're thinking, of course, you're going to do one of those two jobs, um, yeah. but it does kind of evolve, huh? Yeah. It started for me. I started in advertising actually at an agency <laughs> in DC working for, you know, a small agency that did a lot of contract work for the government. And I had always been a film buff. Like I, I say this all the time on the podcast. I was a subscriber to Columbia House. I got the the ten VHS, you know, box, and you're a sucker. I'm a sucker, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I had a, you know, I was always kind of a film buff. I loved it. I remember seeing all these movies when I was a kid, um, and it was always in the back of my mind. And then I had an opportunity to move to LA, and I did. And similar to Tim, my knowledge of the industry was basically producer, director writer, actor. And that was it. I had no sense of everything else that was behind it. And when I started in the industry, I was most, I was in film development. I interned for a producer at, um, excuse me, at Sony. 
And I went from there and then I went to New Line. It was at New Line for almost three years working in film development. And then I worked for those. Who'd you work for at both of those companies? uh, Sony, the producer was Lauren Lloyd. She. um, Oh, I love Lauren Lloyd. (laughs) Yeah. I worked for her for about almost a year. And then I went. Lauren's sister, Wally Nasita. I, yes, I, uh, I don't know. No, I not, think, not sister. Sorry, not sister. Par, uh, partner. They were her partner. partner was, yes. Her partner was Wally. It's yes. Rick Nassita's sister. Yes. Is, was Wally Nassita. Yeah, yeah, correct. There you go. Yeah. Um, and then I went from there to New Line. I worked for George Ward for about two years, uh, two and a half years. Um, and then from there I went over to Fox and ended up in creative advertising and trailers. And, and did you all- always have, did you, Tim and you, did you guys have like an art background did you have it uh you're, you're both in creative advertising right or was it just more of a creative background uh, i was i was a theater major in college I, so, uh, so <laughs> you, and again like what else you just know you want to be in the entertainment industry right so the college wow. offers theater that sounds like entertainment and right. you sure. jump into it i mean I, when i first got to hollywood i didn't know what to do at all so i i very literally parked my car in burbank and i walked door to door and I would just open it. If it said production company, I opened the door. And at the end of the day, by the end of the day, I had offered three jobs. And one of them, I walked into Dick Clark Productions and I got offered a job on the American Music Awards. So within a week, I was from arriving in, you know, in Burbank to being on, you know, in a, on a show. Um, and that's that's olden days, right? That's in the 1990s before 2001 or whatever. You can do that. Tim, I, j- I just heard a great story talking about knocking on doors. Our, we're, my husband, Neil, and I are really uh, very, very close with uh, RJ Wagner, with Robert Wagner mm-hmm. and Jill St. John. And he told us a story that, uh, I don't know, 40 years <laughs> ago or whatever, this guy was knocking on door to door, finding in the flats of Beverly Hills, trying to find a place to live. His name was Mark Harmon. And <laughs> And, and he said he got no responses except from RJ, who said, hey, look, he was with Natalie Wood at the time. I think he said, look, you know, we I don't have space because the kids are using the guest house. But if it ever opens up, whatever. And it forged a lifelong friendship. And he never forgot that. Yeah. It's so stories. nice to be kind to people. Cut to cut to uh, maybe 15, 18, 20 years ago. Uh, I was uh, running a company or a division of a company at OTX called um, what was the motion picture group of a company called OTX. Right. And I was it was in Hollywood um, n- near um, Highland and, and like Orange, I think it was. OK. It was, an old, it, was old, it was in an old funeral uh, factory or something. And uh, this I, and I, I'm coming up from the parking and I see a woman walking door to door with flyers. And I said, hi, what are you doing? She said, um, I'm looking for a job. And I said, oh, well, what do you do? And uh, blah, 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 whatever it was, <clears throat> I said, come on in. And I brought her in and, um, and uh, I, uh, we gave her a job. We gave her a job. It was, um, she didn't have any real work skills per se. Yeah, um, experience in film, like it's hard yeah. to. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think we gave her some office tasks, but the gratitude that she expressed and showed, you know, just sent me over. And, and, uh, and it was just, I've always lived my life that way. You know, I was telling, uh, we were telling a story yesterday cause I do another podcast and uh, a, a guy I've known for 27 years joined me uh, yesterday. And I knew him because he was at a party with my 
brother when he was in college. And basically <laughs> out of the blue, they called us, called me at the party and said, hey, could you give my friend Ben a job? I was like, yeah, just send him out. You know, it just that that groundbreaking movement. Tim, let me tell you something. That is so important. Yeah. And for anyone listening who, um, you know, sends an email out to someone, let me tell you, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of phishing these days, as we know. Yeah, like, of course. I mean, I get, I can't even tell you as running a business, particularly, I don't know, I'm on every friggin' list there is, but, and I have to distinguish between phishing and real inquiries. Uh, but if it's the, if a real inquiry, um, there's not ever a time where we don't get in touch with the person because I have assistants and assistants can at least say, not interested. Right. No, no is an answer. But to ignore someone to me totally is not cool. And I've never done that. <laughs> I love LinkedIn that way. I feel like LinkedIn allows for that connection. There is something, I mean, I like what you're saying because Hollywood often has- A lot of people though don't have LinkedIn who are like right. just uh-huh. starting out. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't have LinkedIn true. these days? Yeah, yeah. That's, they have TikTok and they none TikTok, of us are on yes. TikTok. I'm right. Exactly. Right. No, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. What were you saying? Though? No, I was saying it's so, there. there's a perception of Hollywood that you have to be somebody or in order to break in. You have to have achieved something from the beginning. But, you know, we're all kind of saying in reality, we kind of stumble into the thing we end up doing. Um, I remember someone calling it once a shadow career. So we show up to Hollywood to do one thing, and then there's this other career we actually end up taking because we're not actors or directors, we're doing this other thing. But I, I came to, um, to change my mind about that thought because I'm not living the shadow of what I wanted to do. In reality, I fell in love with a certain group of people, and I want to do all I can with the people that I love. So mm. if it's, in my case, it's people that own production companies and creative agencies, I'll do anything for them. I love it. I wake up every day. Yeah. There's something about that term shadow that sounds like unrealized and mm-hmm. there's nothing unrealized. I just didn't know about right. my field. I didn't know. And so I don't want to put any kind of negativity on it. In fact, happy accidents. I often say I have the best job in Hollywood for so many reasons. I get to really exercise my right and left brain on a consistent and you know continual level. Uh, and it's so fantastic. Because it's always a challenge. Every day is so vastly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I'm truly creative and I'm truly a businessman. So it's that wonderful yin and yang that I constantly keep working uh, where I wouldn't have had as much of that equilibrium as um, an actor. Uh, and maybe as a producer, that might have been the more, uh, uh, more likely field had I not gone into what I went into. I had a stint where I left Hollywood while I was working at Trailer Park. I was actually going to seminary up there in Pasadena. And when I was reading your book, I had this, this like aha thing of like, you're a lot of the work you do is like ministry. You're, you're helping somebody come to uh, a reality of something that they've birthed. Like they, they really have lived with this story and process a story. You even talk about the sacrifice of doing it. You know, to eight o'clock, and then watching dailies and and that kind of that kind of a, a effort you put into making the film, and then you have to show up and kind of process with them good news and bad news, but to help them get, like, to help them get this baby born, right? Like you're actually doing something, get the final thing done. I, I, you hit it right on the head. Too. I often call yeah. myself a conciliary or a yep. rabbi or priest, you know, uh, <laughs> because. Yeah. 
they're people are very vulnerable. Filmmakers are very vulnerable at this yeah. stage of the process. They've, you know, it's like they can control the narrative, if you will, um, almost in, in, in the entirety, in its entirety, until you get to the audience seeing a movie and it's the rubber hits the road time. Yeah. And, you know, the audience speaks and you don't get to, you can't spin that. You can't, you can't hijack that narrative. Yeah. Um, the audience is going to tell you very candidly what they think of the thing that you're putting out into the world. Yeah, but what I think is so brilliant about, because I've been to a few screenings that you've run, and I always used to love watching you with the focus groups, because anytime anyone who's, I'm sure most of our listeners have been in a focus group, it's a little awkward at first, because nobody knows each other. But what was so brilliant, the way you, your point about you being like sort of almost like a rye or priest is so spot on, because by the end, you're like the audience's best friend. You guys are laughing together, you're having fun, but at the same time, you pull out of them what the information the filmmakers in the studio need to improve the film. You know, and even if they just say, I just didn't like that scene, you go like, well, tell me why. Like, what was it this? Was it that? And you sort of like pull out of them something that I just think that can often be difficult to get out of audiences. And I think you mentioned that a lot in your book that. It's it's pulling out from the audience what they really want to see could get better, and it helps for the filmmaker to see it, versus just looking at a score and being like, okay, they're they're wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, Keith, you know, being a um, loving what I do as much as I do, and I mean truly passionate about it and loving it, is part of the success quotient. Because mm -hmm. if you don't love what you're doing in anything, um, it's really hard to be inauthentic and to be a really powerful focus group moderator, for example, is so much about authenticity and connecting yep. with your subjects, whatever right. that may be. I mean, I feel like I could talk to a cat or an inanimate, <laughs> inanimate object because um, I'm going to get behind whatever it is and understand it. That's why I don't like moderating outside of my category. It's too much effort and work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not secure enough. There is, I'll take anyone on when it comes to movies, television content. Uh, I can get in there and um, provide and offer the necessary fixes and so forth and the audience interpretation. But when I get in outside of my comfort zone, it's just a lot of preparation. So I call upon others to do their categories and leave my, <laughs> leave my category to me. I, I can do that just fine with that. But but uh, I don't like to um, go out of what I what I know. Yeah, there's I know there's a pushback when it comes to testing, right? Is that I'm you probably have a technical term for it, but a yeah. filmmaker is told by a studio we're going to pushback is the nice term for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, you know, you guys. Wait, so, what do you think the core is of that? Why do you? So I know you have a perception of like you're a stakeholder, but from a from a creator's point of view, what do you think is the beginning of their of why they want to push back? What you know what what's the resistance there? Because they know there's they who really wants to know the truth. Uh, so I don't. First of all, I agree with you that there's pushback, but there's also massive embracement. Uh, you hear more about the pushback, but most great directors. Um, test their movies. You know, Martin Scorsese is a big proponent of the audience's voice, you know? Uh, so I don't really think that it's like, you can cast that, okay. you know, uh, uh, industry-wide. 
there are those naysayers. And a lot of people don't want to know really the truth. And if you want to know the truth, you better be willing to hear it. You know, I, I've said this many times in my in my um, book tour on my book tour about Ron Howard because in the I mentioned it in the um, in the uh, in the um, uh, in the book where he talks about look I get to choose the script that I'm going to work on I get to work with the writer I'm developing and I get to cast it with the actors I want and the key um, you know people department heads that I want cinematographer editor production designer etc. I get to shoot it my way, then I get to edit it, and then I show it to an audience. And what I set out to communicate may not exactly be what was communicated or what they're picking up on. And so I have to listen and adjust. And I think Hmm. that's the best way to characterize it. I mean, it's information, right? And some people don't want to let their baby in the hands of anyone. They don't want to let them go to preschool because, you know, it's germy and it's, (laughs) and it's, you know, and I want to, I want to, stay with, I want my kid to be with me until they go off to college. And even then I want to homeschool and I have not go to, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I actually know parents that, that are so have such a hold on their children, so afraid to let them go out into the world. Sure. Um, imagine, as you said earlier on, Tim, this is like birthing a child. I mean, it, into the world, you know, it's something that you've created, you've nurtured, You've lived with longer than ge- the gestation of oh, pregnancy. <laughs> <Totally. for sure. laughs> True, in a lot of ways. Just a post-process. And it often takes on, it takes on, you know, great art takes on that almost, um, that almost, uh, um, you know, I don't know, quality of, of, of otherworldly, if you will. Like, it's just so intense. Uh, I see people that are um, at their most vulnerable, as I said, because they're about to hear this. So that's a tough thing. But that's why I guess the, one of the questions I have, because I, I, I do also understand the upside and, and you're right, it can, when it's embraced, there's a, a motivation and a purpose behind it. But isn't it possible that the testing audience or the audience has it wrong? Like, you know, that you have a, a group of people that don't quite understand what the director is trying to convey and the audience, the initial audience says, I don't get it. But, uh, but you know, some things in pop culture, once they start rolling out, they develop momentum. And then later on, an audience is more willing to take advantage of it because they've heard different angles or have been part of a different conversation. I mean, look, here's the thing. An audience just goes in to enjoy a movie. They don't go in trying to interpret the, filmmakers intentions they go in to say show me you know but not in a mean way not in a aggressive way but in a way that a moviegoer or a movie viewer now we say because often movies are not viewed in the theater uh, would see a movie and so they just want to like it and if somebody hunks at you tim or keith on the freeway one person they're an asshole. If four or five people hunk at you, you're the asshole. You're doing something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's good. And so, (laughs) no, but so if you really think about that, you say, I can choose to be stubborn and stick with my convictions. But as Ron said, Howard, you know, what I'm communicating is not being heard, accepted, embraced, by the audience that it was intended for. 
So the filmmaker might be say, well, I don't care. Let them come to me. You know, I find that very indulgent often, not always, but often. Sometimes there's not a clear cut answer, an ambiguous ending, for example. And uh, the, half the audience is saying, give me more clarity, give me more definitive, give me a more definitive ending. And then the uh, studio is saying, no, give, we, we want that definitive ending. But the other part of the audience is saying, no, I like the ambiguity. And the filmmaker wants the ambiguity. And you usually do, will do a bake-off in that case. And if the scores are exactly the same, I say, go with the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to please everybody. Right. And it's not affecting your scores. So allow the filmmaker to have her vision for that, you know? Yeah, that's, I guess what I was just like putting myself in the position of Ang Lee when he's talking about trying to work like Picasso. And I, and I understand like in what you were saying um, in that scenario is that the filmmaker has a, a large, l- larger responsibility because there's other people's cash. There's a studio on the line. There's, you know, a gigantic movement. It's not just a paintbrush and a canvas. It is not the art form. It is not the art form. Uh, it is not, it is a, you can argue that it is um, a director's medium. You know, that is, yeah. uh, I think. And so a, the medium is the message, right? You kind of right. get. Well, the, I know, but it's a director's medium, but it's not exclusive to a director. Like theater isn't, is an actor's medium because mm-hmm. it's, it's more so right. Because that's the, yeah. You know, the vulnerable one on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and, and, and television is more of a producer's medium, mm-hmm. uh, the showrunner, the executive producer, et cetera, just in, it doesn't mean that other people are not involved, but that, but, 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 but you can't do a film without a customer, a production designer, an editor, cinematographer, a, a caterer, uh, a casting director, uh, you know, an accountant. You can't. Yeah. You can, you can have a, the art form of writing a novel is you don't like the novel, you stick it in the back of your drawer. If you're a painter, you don't like the painting, you stick it in the back of your closet and no one's the wiser. But in the, in the case of um, uh, filmmaking, um, it's, it requires great artists and tradespeople to come together for a goal, to bring a vision to life, but you can't do it alone. And if you can do it alone, the old auteur, you know, uh, they wrote it, they directed it, they produced it, they edited Go with God, don't test it, go out in the world with it. It's your money, it's your life, whatever. That's not sure. what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Like almost, <laughs> that almost never exists. Therefore, the audience has to have a say in it it doesn't mean you have to listen, but, you know, ignore them at your own peril. That I, I love. So I, I kind of, I mean, you know, I knew the answer as I asked the questions, but I wanted to get that out of you because I, I think there's a reality to how simple people want to make the, the kind of work you do or the responsibility of a studio about uh, limiting it to business and saying, well, it's just that's just the business side of it. That's just the business side of it. But I'm with you. I think that the purpose of creating a film and telling a story or having a message is so that it can be received and digested. So the audience is part of the filmmaking process. It's the it's the receiver. And a lot of the scenarios you talked about um, were the were Charlie Chaplin sitting in the back so he can listen to the audience laugh. I mean, it's the response that inspires 
the the, the filmmaker or yeah. when the when the I think it was cocktail where the movie just died it didn't finish where the where the filmmakers wanted to so they wanted to yeah the whole tone of it changed the whole tone of it had to be rethought for the last third of the movie because that's not what they wanted that wasn't the art that they wanted to get out they wanted the audience to have a feel good part of it instead of this well, no, the uh, audience wanted to have a feel good. They said, you brought me on this feel good journey. Then you then there's a suicide <laughs> in this, in this, taking me on a dark side. And then I never really recover from that. Right. Mm-hmm. So the filmmakers listened, Bob Court and, you know, and, and the other folks involved in that. And uh, and they turned it around because of that. You know, Pretty Woman. I remember uh, Pretty Woman, you know, Pretty Woman's original script called 3000 was a very dark script. You know, it was a. It was a black comedy in a way, um, or just a, it, it wasn't a, um, let's just say it wasn't the romantic comedy that it right. turned out it was, to be. Right. right. Leave it to Gary Marshall to know how to do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, at the, and at the very end of that, you know, that, that entire last se- scene was reshot because the audience craved the Cinderella, the prince saving the, 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 the princess in a classic fairy tale. Uh, I'm not saying that would fly necessarily today. But, uh, you know, the damsel in distress, but it is archetypal in terms of many people's upbringing. Mm -hmm. And that audience at that time, which was, um, you know, 30 odd years ago, uh, wanted to see that. And so that whole ending of Richard Gere coming back to get her and going up the fire escape and, you know, and um, overcoming his fear of heights and because he his fear of heights was intense, but it didn't supersede her his love for her and then they do a final kiss made the movie a sensation, sensation. as a result yeah. yeah it made it i want to say though um i run a company with 300 people you know and um screen engine asi and you know i often tell the business owners of my different units um you know your your ebitda your 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 net profit contribution is um is under what we need it to be. Um, and they're saying, well, we're, we're working ourselves to the bone. We need more people. And I go, well, you got to figure out what's going wrong because you can't just have more people um, because you either are taking on work that's draining your resources or you're, you're not charging enough or you're, um, you know, you're, you're uh, putting too many resources on a particular project which is kind of the same as the first thing. And so I say, look, guys, at the end of the day, we're a business. We are here to make money. That's the ticket to entry. And there is a minimum benchmark to that, a minimum entry point. And if you're not making that, we're doing something wrong. After that, you could have all the fun you want. You could have all the work-life balance you want. You could have, I, I can't stand that word, work-life balance. I like using life balance because life balance, yeah. it is about, you know, yeah. it's one of many things. In your Things of your life, right. Yeah. But going, taking what I just said to the movie business, at the end of the day, that is the ticket to entry. Every movie needs to make money mm-hmm. or there is no business. Business is business. Business is about making money. That is what it is intended to do. So every business, if it's a winner, will make money. If it's a break-even, it's a break-even situation. Maybe you hang on, maybe you don't. And if it's losing, it's a losing business. You can say it or spin it any way you want, but that's the bottom line. 
on in that framework. And if you are more profitable, you can take more risks artistically. You can hopefully make a gr- money every time out and make great movies every time out and make artistically led movies every time out. It doesn't mean you have to dumb it down. Hmm. And so that's the that's where everyone needs to understand first and foremost if this thing doesn't make money it is not a viable project period period that's right i feel like yeah. you could be a rev think consultant you can join my <laughs> when you're done with your career come come help us because i feel like i teach that all day long too to business owners well, you, of course any any businessman knows that tim any any good business woman and man knows that you have to do that it's the end to the result right like you're not you know, by the way, filmmaker, you're not just making one movie, you're trying to live out a, a career and you have right. to stack film after film after film. And if you if you don't listen and your film dies, one movie doesn't make a career. You're you're done. With your well, career. And I also want to say, Tim, that's a great point. I also want to say this whole notion of the old slate mentality um, or giving um, a movie to uh to a director because they want to be in business with that director on another movie that's bigger. So they want to, they want to satisfy their passion project. Um, You know, I think a lot of that is bullshit because yes, relationships are important, but make the movie for the right price. Often they don't. And so they call them lost leaders. Mm -hmm. Every business has one. I, there's Mm -hmm. things that we approve because we want to get the bigger business. We will lose money on to get that. But sure. I never like doing it, but sometimes you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm talking a little bit about out of both sides of my mouth here, because what <laughs> I'm saying is that I don't like doing it, but sometimes it is necessary. But it, do not make a habit of that. That should be only used in very certain circumstances for very particular reasons. But even if I have a lost leader, I tend to not lose money on my lost leader. And so if they're giving a vanity project to a director in order to seduce her to work on their next big hit, let's say, uh, make it for the right price. I think I think your point's well taken in terms of, you know, let's it's a business after all. We need to make money. It's kind of been challenged lately by the whole streaming model where nobody really knows what's a success based on if it's actually making money or is it more on the number of minutes watched or what have you. So that kind of complicates things a little bit when it comes to that. Well, even so though, Keith, every streamer knows or should know uh, their business intent, meaning that we don't have to know it. It's none of our business, quite frankly. Um, I mean, I'd love to know it because <laughs> no, because I analyze all these different movies right. and I'd love to know, but it's, it's the fact is if, if, um, if Netflix, for example, makes um, you know a ton of movies, they hopefully know exactly what they can spend with their algorithm of sub additional subs and retention of those subs, because that's what all it's about with, the, right. with, with subscribers is you know how many more subscribers can they get with that piece of material and how many can they retain, and I'm sure that it switches dramatically on certain kinds of material. You know, Red Notice uh, was a huge movie. I'm sure they spent a lot of money. They purportedly, the, the, it's the most expensive movie they ever made, but apparently it did more, like it was the highest, you know, seen movie, right. however right. they measure it. Yeah. Now, whether or not they're spinning it, that's their own internal 
thing because then next time they'll do it better or different. But I'm saying it's all relative to whatever business model you have. It's not always about reporting a gross and knowing if that made money or not. You know, I mean, if it if it if 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 it grew their subscription rate by another million people because of that, well, sure, it was perhaps well, well worth it. And mm-hmm. people are retaining, uh, you know, their subscriptions. That yeah. is another really compelling reason. Yeah, smart um, yeah I, I want to pivot real quick while we have time, because there was something you wrote in your book, which I really liked, and I'm going to quote it exactly. Um, it's, it's uh, if you forgive me, I'm just going to read from directly from it. It says, we tend to think of America as a country of tribes, of NASCAR dads and Oscar moms, of white collar and blue collars, ROTC cadets and hipster kids. And in many ways, I think we are that country. But not so much when the light goes down and the curtain parts. A well-crafted, entertaining movie can speak to everyone. In the darkness of the theater, people of all types and beliefs will suspend their differences for a couple of hours and just get swept away. Love that. My question to you is this. (laughs) With streaming booming as much as it is, can you still get that same feeling? When you're not Mm. sitting in a theater with a bunch of other folks and you're not experiencing that sort of camaraderie that you get when you go to the theater. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 um, I have great satisfaction watching a movie alone in a, in a, in a movie theater when I'm in a run through or, um, you know, I have a beautiful screening room at home. I don't <clears throat> need to be influenced by anyone around me. And I know that if you, Keith and you, Tim, were watching that same movie, we would call each other afterwards and come together on many areas of it. Right. Um, I think um, there's a couple of things going on here. There's human connection on the one hand, which is universal to, um, to, to listen to Shakespeare, for example. And you say, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what Shakespeare, what, are, what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> a great Shakespeare is about behavior, right? And great behavior is universal. I mean, you know, it's so if you can, if you can um, elevate your craft um, and you are able to touch someone, whether through a performance, through the writing that led to that performance, through the editing that led from the writing to the performance, to the cutting of that, um, that's magic. And it, it transcends demographics. It, def- it transcends demography. It transcends uh, even um, psychographics, which is more more attitudes and behaviors, right? Because it's it's everyone feels certain things. I mean, there's always the exception, but you know, ninety five percent of the world um, knows that when they see um, you know a dog being injured in a video, that they don't go, oh yeah, you know, they go, they either can't look. They cry, they turn away, they want to, there's a call to action, whatever it may be. There's just a universal pathos. Mm-hmm. And so great art does that. And movies have a way of reaching the masses. So it really is something I believe in. That said, we're also doing ourselves a tremendous disservice um, in today's day and age by, you'll appreciate this coming from creative advertising, by being obsessed with this demographic identifiers, these demographic identifiers, bucketing people uh, into, you know, whether they're female or male, whether they- Four quads, baby, the four quadrants. (laughs) The quads are just one thing. Right. Uh, 
when when Keith mentions the quads, you know, four quads every for years, and that's mostly because of Nielsen ratings connected to U.S. Census data, yeah. where you buy media in you know, you know cost per thousands in the in those buckets of you know twenty five to fifty four, eighteen right. to thirty four, eighteen to forty nine, and that's archaic as we have moved so much into streaming and linear is becoming less and less uh, important in people's lives in terms of advertising. Mm. So my suggestion for the next generation and something I'm going to be putting forward in this summer, I'm going to bring bringing some of my competitors together, even people from Nielsen, even people from the U.S. Census are my hope to get part of this is to have a really healthy dialogue about how we can pivot that and create more like segmentations so that uh, a massive government segmentation of what the U.S. population looks like, let's say it comes out, because you never know what a segmentation, how many segments they're going to be until right. after you got the, the segmentation. But let's say there are 12 segments at the end of the day. You know, the three of us, well, you know, we're, we're I think we're all cisgender males, um, but, you know, I'm gay. Um, are you guys straight? You identify mm-hmm. as straight. Yeah. Yep. But I guarantee we come together um, on several TV shows. Um, if I were, or Keith, if you were African American and Tim, you were Hispanic and I'm Asian, we might not ever see those television shows because the the way that the advertising would be bought might be by ethnicity and race. Mm-hmm. And so that is not a way to to ingratiate like common uh, commonalities and coming together as people beyond you know age gender ethnicity and race so like it's that's old yeah right? it's like the what's what's depriving us of and and by the way sit, come on, let me just finish one it's also a way of almost um in our little world being part of a sexism genderism you know, racism. That's exactly it. Bucketing people. Like, why are we doing that anymore? This is not who we are, especially Gen Z's and half of millennials. They don't give a shit about, um, uh, about um, not like we, not even us, but our parents' generation cared because that's how they grew up, you Mm -hmm. know, much more so into these buckets of identification. But now it's like we live in a, we're going to, in 2043, America as a whole turns into a minority majority country. We've already had five, four states in DC turn. That is to say, more minority, ethnically and racial minorities live in California, Hawaii, Arizona, Texas, uh, and I believe DC, um, more than Caucasians. And that's going to happen in the entire country. Totally, yeah. In right, the 40s. Yeah. So why are we looking at this? And that affects all of the kinds of things we're talking about. Your program, your podcast, the the essence of it is very much about um, the brokenness and the and the fixes, right? That can come from uh, these early changes, these DNA changes in our industry that really need to occur. Uh, and they're occurring with the streamers because the streamers, by and large, don't give a damn about demography. They care about 
subscribers yep. and they don't even know what people look like. They have number one, seven, 19, 28, 822, 600, all these are numbers and they have commonalities of likes and, and, and shared values and perhaps educational and, and, and status commonalities, whatever it may be. I'm not saying demography is, is completely unimportant, but it's not the, should not be the key drivers of what is creating our advertising, which creates our content. Which creates our content, yeah. Content, and yeah. the outreach, that's a, like the, we're being deprived of these pop culture experiences that you and I could sit around and talk about because we all shared a moment or a time or uh, watched a film, saw a sporting event. There were these things that used to bring people together and there was a shared experience. And I, I think you're right. The The more it's divided, the more the echo chambers have events that they share, but it's hard to understand a crossover conversation or allow for entry into something where we can, we can share something together. And that I, one is I believe that the tech that's now involved in entertainment is taking advantage of us because it can divide us and keep us subscribed because it keeps feeding us the sugar and the butter that we like, right? Like we like, oh, I love this. This is perfect. It's exactly my, my, uh, the film that I like, but it doesn't challenge us always or currently to do something different. Somebody else outside of that technology has to do that. Where a lot of what, what you're talking about, um, and almost like I can understand like your drive for life is to be able to share you you've captured in over 30 years, you've captured this idea of what an audience is. Right. And how an audience embraces story and understanding perspective. But I get to, but Tim, my my uh, theory are, are less theories and based in empirical evidence. Uh, and I spend my life uh, going around yeah. the country. But you're the lucky. You have the luckiest job in Hollywood. A lot of us <laughs> don't have that empirical evidence, but we just feel it in our bones, right? So yeah. I, I made a comment yesterday at lunch to a journalist. Uh, I said, every movie, if made and marketed for the right price, should make money. And she said to me, you know, Kevin, it's interesting. There have been many people that I've sat across from at lunch who can claim that, but I'm listening to you in a different way. And I said, tell me, talk why, you know, I knew, yeah. kind of knew the answer. And she said, because you're coming from a scientific, more of a scientific, more of a data-driven right. um, sort of analysis of that statement. Mm -hmm. um, of risk mitigation, of, um, of, of trying to get really beneath the surface and, um, and make um, a true business case. Um, I love content, as I know you to do, and, and most people do. Very few mm -hmm. people say, well, I'm not really, I don't really like watching things. Like, that's not, it's, no. <laughs> we are in such a golden era. So we're going to turn this as we, as we get into the last part of this, we're going to turn this in a really positive way, which is, you know, um, the opportunities right now are endless. endless. In my little corner, my little area of the business that I can affect change in making this world a better place and making our industry better, I think is in this notion of having people reframing the discussion around how we measure success. And how we begin the process of that by understanding innately 
what you're making from the outset, sizing the audience potential for that, and then putting a budget behind that. But if you don't understand, people think they understand it. They, they create aspirational comps of movies that have nothing to do with the movies that are being made and consequently lose tens of millions of dollars. And there's no reason to do that. I'm not saying you're going to win every time out. You're going to do your best to win every time out. And if you do the work, the pre-work, the pre-work, the pre-green light, pre-development, pre-production work correctly, uh, and understand it innately, shame on you if you don't know, producer, that there is are only two buyers that are going to buy your movie about garden soil. <laughs> I think there's a movie about one garden soil. <laughs> one is a horticulture website, and one is the you know uh, something on cable, and one will pay twenty thousand dollars in perpetuity for all rights because it's a web series oh. so, web webisodes you yeah, know and right. segment, and one will pay you know a license fee uh, on a cable of um, you know seventy five thousand dollars. I don't know, making this up, but the cho- point is. Don't make that. Don't do it for three hundred thousand. <laughs> right, a hundred thousand for eighty thousand. Yeah. yeah, you know, we have. I have a program I teach called Show Launcher, and it's exactly again. I swear, you and I should be in business together. Um, it's exactly <laughs> that premise. We say you have to start first with your why. Why oh, are you doing it? Why? Who does that appear oh, to? I love that, Tim. And then where? Yeah. So it's why, yeah. who, where, and then yeah, yeah. finally what? What should you be making? What is the budget? Who should be in it? That the the final product should have everything in mind of what the audience is, but don't go spend three hundred thousand dollars for a TV show one that will never be made. Right, that's the first mistake. I love what you're saying because you're not even saying three million. You're saying three hundred thousand. You know, I got to say the best thing to do is to um, is to understand a need. Like you know, I was starting to tell you we made a movie, mom, that um, I financed last year for a very low price. But I did my research. I knew the buyers. I knew whatever, you know, whatever it was. And so we were whole before we were even going out. Mm-hmm. Sure. You say we're yeah. whole before we're even going out into the world with it. But how did the testing go for that movie? I want to know <laughs> how it went. <laughs> not, 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 not particularly well. Oh, uh, really? Wait, you did know? you do the testing yourself? Yeah. Did somebody, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah how was that and, to be uh, eat your own um, um, food? <laughs> you know, it, I was so used to it. And uh, I, I, I really listened mm. and I really listened and I really made changes based on, but it's, you know, it's somewhat painful to hear something you've worked on uh, for a while being um, bullied or being shat upon or being, you know, scrutinized. It's like, no one wants to hear that. But when you do, if you, if you have the opportunity to hear it and know, and you believe in the wisdom of the crowd uh, or the crowds, then you know that, you know, they, they're, they're hunk, many are hunking at you. Yeah. yeah they're, they're many hunk- all right. Listen, we, I can t- talk to you all day. So I gotta, <laughs> you and I got to go to coffee. Seriously, <laughs> I always do this to our guests. I always say, let's go to coffee. Cause I'm on the West coast and Keith is on the East coast. So we can't have the coffees that I can have in the world. Um, <laughs> but I, we've been saying your book, but I don't think we've hold it up for anybody. Audienceology is the book that you, that you've written that we've been referring to but you gave us a sneak peek into you're also writing a second book too, right? So you are now an author as well as 
Well, yeah, it's, it's a ton of work. Um, and I, um, I already missed my first deadline. Uh, <laughs> apparently that's very, uh, <coughs> course. yeah, par- I think that's, that's a normal, uh, trajectory for, um, for a, for a freshman writer. But, uh, I will say that it's called how to score in Hollywood and it's based on sort of the green light process and the risk mitigation that we're talking about. I have a four ability philosophy, um, based on, um, um, you know, capability, which is what we're talking about now, and then playability, which is what I talk about in audienceology, marketability, which what you guys have done in testing mm-hmm. spots and understanding the persuasiveness of advertising, and then buzzability. And each one has its own check marks that have to be, you know, checked along the way. Um, sometimes you only need one. Uh, you usually need at least two. Um, three will get you a pretty strong hit. And four is just a smash. Right. Um, but none of them, having none of them, will get you a failure. Right. Failure. Love it. Fascinating. So listen, if you're listening to this, so you want to reach out to Kevin because you want to work for his business, ah. they should find you at, they should get on LinkedIn and hit you up, right? That's how we're going to do this now. Uh, Screen Engine is the name Actually, of- Tim, Tim is vetting all my- uh, inquiries. I love Tim, so Tim, Thompson, Tim Thompson. Tim Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. My website is uh, Kevin gets 360.com. Kevin gets G O E T Z 360.com. And that's where they can find your book. Uh, I bought this on Amazon. So they can find the book. They can see a tra- They can see a trailer too. Yeah. Amazon, yeah. wherever books are sold. There's an audio version also. Yeah, um, that uh, is a lot of fun. I and think. the book we should say is is stories. It's not. Uh, it wasn't a, a, a data book. It was a book oh, about no, the stories and the filmmakers. Yeah. I love the 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 chapter about the black dress. I mean, just I could almost imagine being that producer to see the audience start growing for that for uh, for the film. It's just yeah. one of those amazing yeah. parts of, of Hollywood. Fun. To be part it's of. fun. People yeah. love uh, people. The comments I'm getting are just extraordinary. I'm very yeah. grateful for all people who have read it and are so, uh, so uh, positive about it. So thanks for having me on you guys. Yeah. You're a blessing. Thanks for being part of this. Thanks for coming, Kevin. We appreciate it. It's great seeing you, Keith. It's been a yeah. while. Yeah. Good to see you too, Kevin. Hope to have you back Bye again too. sometime. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that. Thank all you. Right. Thank Bye-bye, you. Kevin. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.